I invite you to stand now for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts 4, uh, 23 through 31 is our text for the sermon today. Let us hear now the living and abiding Word of God. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness that they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. This is the very word of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we see here in this account that you are a God of great power. You, Holy Spirit, come upon your people with great power, and we desire to also be strengthened in the inner man, that as a whole church body, uh, we would be strengthened. And so we ask, Lord, that you would grant your blessing now to the words that we hear, uh, that they might uh, be applied to our hearts, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we return to Acts this morning, brothers and sisters, we have one of the recorded prayers of the early church. You know that Acts, of course, is a narrative book. It's got all these remarkable stories of what God did in the early church. And then there's also sermons, many sermons that we've already seen, and we're going to see more sermons that are recorded for us. And then there are also uh, prayers recorded, prayers of the early church. And in fact, so far, in every chapter of Acts, there has been prayer. Uh, Interesting that the prayer is such a pervasive reality amongst the early church that every chapter so far has had prayer. Uh, For example, in chapter 1, we find the Christians in the upper room. They're waiting for the Spirit to come, and they're praying to God uh, in, in in awaiting the Spirit's coming, but they're also praying that God would guide them in establishing a new apostle. Uh, We find in chapter 2, of course, that when the Spirit of God came on the day of Pentecost, that the Spirit of God was poured out, 3,000 people were added to the church, and what is it that they devoted themselves to? To prayer, the breaking of bread, the teaching and fellowship of the apostles, but prayer was amongst those four things mentioned, devoted to it with one accord. Chapter 3, we see Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, which they then use as an occasion to preach the word. And then we come to chapter 4. Now, all of this should make very clear to us that the church of Jesus Christ is defined as a praying people. 
the basic pulse of spiritual life amongst God's people is to pray. And where there is no prayer, there is no spiritual life. Prayer is an indispensable element of spiritual life. Because when the Spirit of God comes to give life to a dead people and to make them an alive people, they will be a people that breathe and pray, as we see here. Now what we have recorded in this passage is an example of corporate prayer. This is not just an individual prayer of somebody. We do have those in Acts. But this is a corporate prayer. This is the church of Jesus coming together, praying with one accord. And so there's much instruction for us about a, the nature of corporate prayer in the body of Christ and how we are to join in prayer together. Now, whenever we come to prayers in Scripture, I think there's a few things that we should take from them. How do we use prayers that are contained in Scripture? Well, I want to give three particular aspects of how we use recorded prayers in Scripture. The first way in which prayers in Scripture help us is to give us inspired models on how to pray. These prayers of Scripture should shape our own prayer lives as well. We, we need to grow in prayer. We need to learn how to pray. And what better place to go than to the Word of God itself. The Bible says that we often do not know how we ought to pray. As Romans 8 says, we struggle in prayer. We struggle to express what we need to express. And then the, thankfully the Spirit of God is there to help us and and uh, as it were, reshape our petitions uh, and bring them to the Father on our behalf. And when I say that we need to grow in prayer, I don't mean that we need to grow in verbal eloquence. That's not the main point here. Uh, Certainly we all appreciate an eloquent prayer in the sense that it is something we can follow and we can understand and it expresses biblical sentiments perhaps, but eloquence is not the, the chief thing. Of course, the Pharisees presumably were quite eloquent and they made long prayers to impress the people, but their aim was not to please God in all of that. They were man-pleasers and certainly when it comes to verbal eloquence, we might be tempted in the same manner to impress with our prayers, which is hardly the point. What I mean by growing in prayer is that one, in one way in which we grow in prayer is that our, our thoughts and our desires become more and more aligned to the will of God. That is what we want to do. We want to pray according to the will of God, and so we want our prayer lives to be in, being brought into alignment with the will of God. That's one way we grow. Now, another way that we grow in prayer is in our constancy in prayer, that we pray without ceasing, and we more and more do what that exhortation tells us to do, which is to make prayer a much bigger part of our lives than it yet is. So those are two ways in which we are to grow in prayer. Uh, The second way in which the prayers of Scripture help us is as a window into what we believe. So when you come to a prayer in Scripture that is recorded for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, It is a window into what we are to believe. Because if you want to know what somebody believes, listen to how they pray and what they say in their prayers. Our our faith is then evidenced in the words that we speak, in the prayers that we bring. you'll, You'll get a sense of the 
the God to whom somebody is praying by listening to what they're saying in their prayers. And certainly here, the prayer of the early church gives us a a picture of God, uh, a window into the truth of God, of his greatness, his power, his his creative power, his sovereignty over all things. Uh, That's what it teaches us about our God. So that's one way in which uh, the prayers of Scripture help us is as a window into belief. Thirdly, the third and final way I want to mention that that prayers of Scripture are are helpful is they remind us of the importance of prayer and the power of prayer. Especially when we get to read a narrative when the answer to prayer happens. Isn't that great? You get to read the prayer and then you get to read about the answer to prayer. This is an encouragement to us to pray as well. We love hearing about answers to prayer, don't we? Because they are encouragements to us to press on in prayer, to grow in prayer, and to say, I need to get back into this. I need to uh, pray with faith that God is going to to hear me, he's going to answer. And that's what we see here. In this case, they pray for power to to speak boldly, and then God grants them that petition. The, The place is shaken, there's an earthquake, the Spirit of God fills them, and then they're able to speak with boldness. And so that is a third way in which the prayers of Scripture help us Now, I've titled this message, A Corporate Prayer for Boldness. I've titled it that way because that is the main petition of the prayer, is that God would make them bold to speak about the truth of the gospel. That was their main desire. Now, they preface the petition with an address to God and praise to God, and we'll look at that as part of the prayer, but that is their desire. That's their petition. Now, brothers and sisters, I believe that this prayer for boldness is something that we ourselves need to uh, press into as well. It's something that we need to adopt as well because we are called to speak with boldness and courage in this world. Uh, We are not to be a fearful and timid people. That is not why God has given us his Holy Spirit is to be a fearful and timid people that cannot speak. That's quite the contrary. We've been given a spirit of power, love, And a sound mind. And our greatest need is not for a peaceful life. Our greatest need is not that we have a, quote, safe church where there are no problems. It's not that we need deliverance from all trouble. These are, of course, expressions of our desires at times, right? We we desire deliverance from trouble. We desire peace. We desire things to be going very well. But Acts doesn't really present to us a picture of the way the church advanced in that way, does it? It, Acts presents to us a church in constant conflict with the world. (coughs) It presents a church going through difficulty. It presents a church growing while being persecuted and under duress from the world. And this particular prayer is noteworthy because... They don't ask to be delivered from trouble. They could have asked that. But what they ask for boldness in the midst of the conflict and the difficulty that they're facing from the outside world. And so I think this prayer can reshape our way of thinking about how God works as we encounter difficulty, as the church runs into some kind of major difficulty, especially as it relates to the outside world. We need to pray, as the early Christians prayed here, for boldness to press through, boldness to stand for the truth of the gospel. 
Remember, brothers and sisters, that the gospel turns the world upside down. That's what it says in Acts uh, in one instance, is that they were turning the world upside down. And turning worlds upside down inevitably involves shaking up. It involves uh, difficulty. It involves opposition. And that is what they were going through here. So let's look at this prayer now in detail. We're going to look at it in three particular sections. And I'll give you those sections before we dive in. The first is that they pray to God, the creator. The first point here we're going to cover is praying to God, the creator, because they address his creative work uh, before they go further in their prayer. The second is that they pray to the sovereign Lord, the Lord who is in control of all of history, everything that happens. That's another way in which they preface their petition. And then the third is the actual petition. They pray for boldness. So those are the three points we're going to look at. Praying to God the Creator, praying to the Sovereign Lord, and praying for boldness. Now let's look at verses 23 through 24. Remember the, the context here. The context is that Peter and John have been before the authorities, and the authorities said, stop preaching about Jesus or we will hurt you. They threatened them. They said, we will, they, they didn't specify the threat here in Acts, but hurt or kill or imprison, we're going to do something very nasty to you if you keep preaching the truth. So what do they do? They go back to the rest of the church and they say, here's what they said to us. And then we don't see them all quaking in fear and panicking and saying, I guess we're going to have to pick a new strategy. We're just going to have to choose a quiet place. We're going to have to find a little corner in Jerusalem where they're not going to cause much disturbance. We might pass out some literature quietly. No, they don't do that. They say, we're going to pray for boldness to speak the word of God without fear. And we're just going to keep going. That's what they do. So what do they do in verse 24? It says, they heard, when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now as we look at how they begin the prayer as it's recorded, you'll notice this constantly recurring word in Acts. It is the word, or the phrase in English, with one accord. They raised their voice with one accord. Accord. Why is this mentioned so many times in Acts? Well, I think it's mentioned because when the Spirit of God began to form this new community called the church, the Spirit of God instilled within that community amazing unity within them. They were so unified in their heart and in their mind in terms of what they were aiming for that when they prayed together, they weren't praying in a divided way. It wasn't like there was one half of the congregation that says, I can't get on board with that prayer. And then the other half was. No, this is a a one-voice prayer. And yet it's not technically probably a one-voice. I don't think this was a hundred people or a thousand people praying in unison. I doubt that. I I think what it's saying when it says with one voice is that people were praying things like this and everybody was joining in. It was expressive of their heart desire as the body of Christ. Now sometimes we recite prayers as we've been doing with the prayer of confession. But you know we have a congregational prayer, which we just had. And we call it the congregational prayer because it is the prayer of the whole congregation expressed through 
a mouthpiece in the case of one of us pastors or Deacon Chad or somebody praying. And so the right way to think about the congregational prayer is not this. You're not saying, Pastor Todd is praying and I'm listening. The right way to think about it is we are praying and Pastor Todd is praying on our behalf. He is raising up our thanksgivings and our petitions to God on our behalf. And so that is one of the reasons that we've been emphasizing these hearty amens at the end of congregational prayers is because we want that sense that we are joining in with one accord to the prayer of the church, that this is our desire, this is our thanksgiving as well. Now, one thing we should also notice about their unity here is that the effect of persecution and threats drove them together, not apart. You don't see them scattering in terms of division in this passage. You don't see everybody, like I said, freaking out, and they lost, you know, they had end up with 10 different groups on what to do with this threat. You know, you didn't have all these parties and factions on strategies for dealing with the threats and this division that occurred within the church. Instead, they are unified. They come together with one accord. And we know that in history, in general, persecution has this effect of driving the people of God together, not apart. Now, it's true that when persecution comes in history, you're going to find some that defect from the truth. They're going to fall away. They're going to make their true colors known. Uh, for example, we see this in the, the, the church in Korea after the Korean Pentecost in the early 1900s. This was a deeply unified church at the beginning, but when the Japanese came into Korea and they started persecuting the church and they started requiring idol worship from the church, suddenly you have these two groups that did form. You had the groups that were committed to not breaking the commands of God and worshiping false gods. <coughs> and then you had... You had another group, and it became very clear, uh, quickly clear what the true church, who the true church was. It was those that would not worship idols. And it drove that church together. I think we experienced something of this back when COVID-19 began in 2020 and 2021. It was actually a unifying effect for the churches here in, in the valley. We connected with the churches in Elizabeth more than we ever did before. And certainly we can look at COVID-19 and say, well, that's hardly what uh, many of the Christians have to face in the 1040 window in the Middle East and Asia. And that's true. I, I think maybe it's God's trial run for us. It's sort of our our, our, our uh, uh, kindergarten class on unity, on how to deal with outside threats, and we have to kind of get going and learn how to do this. And maybe God has been merciful to give us a little bit of a trial run so that the next time it's a lot harder, we're going to be better at this. So that's the one thing we see about the prayers. It was a prayer made with one accord. But next, let's look at their address to God as the God who created all things. Look at verse 24 again. It says, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, now why would you say this? Why, why begin your prayer with a recitation of God as creator and then list some of the things he created? We might say, well, it's not necessary to do that. You could just say Heavenly Father, right? It's true. You could just say Heavenly Father, as we often do. Why is it helpful to, to mention the creative work of God? 
And what's the relationship between the persecution and the opposition they're facing to God as creator? You might say, well, God created thousands of years ago. Why mention that? Why is this relevant? Well, this is the connection. Since God made all things by his powerful word in six days, then he certainly has the power to help them in this particular trial and difficulty. If God, as he created all things that exist, if, if the God who made 200 billion trillion stars, all the planets, all the oceans, all the creatures on earth, do you think that he can help in this situation? There's so many times where we need to step back And we need to renew our minds with the truth of the God to whom we are praying to. As we sang in the hymn earlier, you are coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. Brothers and sisters, you are coming to the creator of the universe. There's many times in scripture that the saints are directed back to God's work of creation so that if in their minds God has become much too small... That then God will be expanded back into that great big view that we're supposed to have. Take, for example, Isaiah 40, verse 28. This is speaking to the weary, weak saints of God. It says in Isaiah 40, 28, Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. Amen. Don't we need to hear these words? So you come in, you kind of drag yourself in on Sunday morning, and you've you got the drooping hands and the weak knees that Hebrews talks about, and you can slump down in your chair, and you're here, but you're just, you feel weak, and you feel weary. That's, why, that's when you need to be reminded of the God to whom you are coming. You're weak and weary, but God is not, and he cannot become weak and weary because he is the creator of the ends of the earth. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to study the creation of God and we need to mention the creation of God. I think there are perhaps times where we need to start beginning our prayers in the same way, uh, especially when our faith is so weak and it's just shaky. Uh, It takes some faith, perhaps, to say these words, but to say, Lord creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Won't that help in reshaping your mind uh, uh, concerning the God to whom you are praying? If at any point you doubt the power of God to help you, you just need to get a telescope, invest in a telescope. Dr. Lyle says you can get a decent one for maybe two or three hundred dollars. It's worthwhile. You get a telescope and you look outside and look at the stars and then say, this is the God who can help me. Little me. You say, God made all of these. He can help me. Or if you have uh, enough money to do this, you get to go to the ocean, you get some goggles and a snorkel, you head to the coast, you submerge yourself in the waters, and you just look at a coral reef. And you think of the beauty and the wisdom and the goodness of God, and you say, this is the God that can help me. This is the God to whom I am praying. Or thankfully, if you, uh, if you can't make it to the coast, we have closer things you can look at. You can take a drive into the Rocky Mountains. You can find a moderately easy trail if you're not good at hiking. You can go up a little ways and then just look at the mountains and the, the forest and the water and say, this is the God who can help me. 
And so when we address God as the creator in our prayers, I think it has two effects. One effect is that we glorify God for who he truly is, which is part of the aim of prayer, to glorify God, to magnify him, to make his name great in the earth. But then secondly, we have the effect of strengthening our own weak faith in the God to whom we are praying. So perhaps the application for us is that we need to start addressing our God as the creator of all things and review those things. Kids, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, we pray to a very big God who made everything that exists. He has the power to help us. You are praying to the God who made all the stars. He has the power to help you. No matter how big your problem seems to you, it is not a big problem to God. It is not an unsolvable problem to our great God. So that's how they address God as creator. This strengthens their faith as they pray. They're addressing a big God who can help them with their threat and persecution problem. And then next, we see that they address the Lord as the sovereign Lord over all things. So they've addressed God as the creator, and now they address God as the one who is in control of all things. Now, how do we know that they're speaking of the sovereignty of God? Well, look at the, of course, quote from Psalm 2. They quote Psalm 2 in verse 25. It says, Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Here they're quoting directly from the Greek Old Testament, word for word from Psalm 2, and they're, they're taking God's word, as we should often do, and they're praying it back to God. They're interpreting their situation in light of God's word. That's what we need to anchor us when we're dealing with difficult situations. We need the clarity that comes from the word of God. And they know that this is exactly what God said would happen. He said, they're reminding themselves through Psalm 2 that, This is what we should expect, that the Christ, the anointed one, is going to be opposed by the nations. Now, what's perhaps remarkable about this is that it's not just the Gentile nations that they have in view, but in fact, the leadership of the Jewish people has become the opposing nations against Christ at present. That's how they see this whole situation playing out. But this psalm gives them confidence, doesn't it? Because they know that the opposition against the Christ is in vain. And it's not going to stop the advance of the reign of Christ. But also, we see more references to the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 27. They, they mention this, interestingly again. Uh, they mention what God had predestined to take place. Verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now here's what they're saying in their prayer. They're saying that all of this opposition, the acts of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin and the Romans, it was all predetermined by a sovereign God. They believe that God's hand and his purpose were coming to pass in the death, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
This reminds us, brothers and sisters, that the Bible plainly teaches that God predetermines all things that come to pass in history, including the most evil things that have ever happened. And this, this blows our mind. We, we, we struggle to explain these things. We, we struggle to explain how the actions of evil men doing evil things is predetermined by God, but God is not the actor of those evil things himself. He remains morally pure. He is blameless. There is no impurity within him. He does not do evil, but he so determines that evil in this matter will bring about the greatest good for the salvation of the world. And there's a lot of controversy about God's sovereignty over history, God's predestining hand in the work of history, but I I believe that the example of the death of Christ being predetermined by God is one of the most helpfully clarifying passages in all of Scripture for understanding the sovereignty of God. Because they're quite uh, honest in the fact that These things were done by evil men. There was evil intention. Satan had an evil intention. Uh, The Jews had an evil intention. The Romans had an evil intention in killing Christ. But what was God intending through it? Isaiah 53 says that he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53 says that it was the will of the Lord... To bruise him. And why do they mention this? Why do they bring up the truth of God's predestining sovereign hand and the death of Christ in relation to what's happening to them? Well, it reminds them that if God has predetermined that Jesus would die and rise again and ascend to the right hand and rule over all things, then surely he has a hand over the persecutions that we face. Surely he has a hand in the the oppositions and the jailings and the whippings and all these other things that take place. Surely he's going to use that as well for the accomplishment of his purposes. They're resting in the sovereignty of God. If God could bring about the greatest good from the most evil act ever committed, does he have the ability and his wisdom and his sovereignty to bring about good from any other bad thing that happens? It is so important that when you and I pray, that we we pray to a God who is all-powerful and who rules over the affairs of history. What hope would we have if God did not know what was going to happen to us, or God did not have a hand in anything that happened to us? What if we were praying to a God that could only say to us, I'm sorry, I did my best. You're going to just have to push through Uh, I'll try to take care of it on the other side, but I didn't have a hand in any of this. I'm sorry, I can't help you. You know there's people that teach that about God. Uh, Why pray? (laughs) Help, help, Lord. I can't help, I'm sorry. I can't help. That's, That's what some people teach about God's abilities. No, brothers and sisters, we need to know that when we pray, we are praying to a sovereign God who has power over everything. Over every sparrow that falls to the ground, it does not fall apart from the will of our Father in heaven. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. 
but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. He says, sparrows just aren't worth that much, but not a single one falls apart from the Father's will. And he says, if you're much more valued than sparrows, God can even take care of every single hair on your head. That is the meticulous providence of God in the care of his people. And yet, in, in order to preserve the idol of human free will, as some people understand it, some people would have to object to the, the perspective of the early Christians here and to say, look, God can't predestine these things that take place. You couldn't have a hand in evil things. Some would object to this. One popular theologian gave this analogy, which is shocking in its implications. I'm still amazed that he, he said it. He says, God has to play with the cards that he has been dealt. God has to play with the cards that he has been dealt. I'm thinking, well, who's the card dealer here? God is limited in his options to a certain number of hands, and he's got to play the hand that he's been dealt. You don't see this in the prayer of the early Christians, do you? Do you see a a sense of, oh, God's so limited here, Uh, we can't really help us here. That's not what we see. We see them praying to the God who prophesied what would take place, who predetermined what would take place, who in space, time, and history made sure that it took place and is still in control of all of history. This is a very different, this is a perspective that we need our minds to be renewed by, that God is in control of all things that take place. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says that God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that section where it says that in Ephesians 1 is a section that's reminding the Ephesian saints of how God graciously chose them before the foundation of the world to be his people. And they're hearing all of this and they're thinking, that's so great news, but what if it just doesn't work out? And then Paul says, no, it's God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Every circumstance in your life, the fact that you heard the gospel, the fact that you received the gospel, the fact that you will persevere in the gospel (coughs) is safe because God directs all things according to the counsel of his will. So kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, we pray to a God who directs all things that happen in history, including what happens in our lives. And so if you find yourself in a difficult situation, you find yourself facing trouble, that's what they're dealing with here, you are not there by accident. God can help you now that you are in trouble. He can direct you. He can give you grace. He can sustain you in it. He is there to help you in the trouble. The trouble is not an accident. So now we've looked at the way in which they pray to the Lord as they preface their prayers, and then as now we come to the petition itself, verses 29 through 30. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, as I said earlier, this is a fascinating petition by what it leaves out. You see, what what they could have prayed, or what maybe some of us would have prayed, perhaps, because they're saying, Lord, we are dealing with threats. 
We are dealing with persecution. There are people that want to hurt us. That's what they're honest about. But they don't say this. They don't say, deliver us from all threatenings and give us a perfectly peaceful, placid environment in which we can share the gospel. They didn't pray for that. They don't say, Lord, the work has become so dangerous, we ask that you would give us an opportunity to retire from this effort. No, they don't pray that because they are directed in their thoughts by the commission Jesus gave them, which is to preach the word, to testify to the nations. They can't retire from this this work. This is what they're to do. And so they said, Lord, give us grace to keep going on in the work of witness. Give us boldness to speak that word without fear because they knew that fear was this big enemy that they faced. (coughs) See, when we're not dealing with a a fearful situation, we don't need boldness as much. We're If everything is going well and everybody likes what we're saying, it doesn't take much boldness. But when people are threatening, when they are hostile, when they're saying slander against you, when they are uh, accusing you of things that you did not do or do not believe, that's when you need boldness. It is against the backdrop of such threatenings, threatenings that the power of God shines when God empowers his people to speak with boldness despite what they're facing, it makes the power of God known. It shows the power of the gospel at work. And as we think about this petition for a prayer of boldness, we need to remember that this is part of our inheritance, brothers and sisters. We are those, if we have trusted in Christ, we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Spirit as a down payment, as a pledge of our salvation. And when that Spirit comes and indwells us, the Spirit comes to give us power. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This is what the Spirit of God produces within us, brothers and sisters, to give us power, to give us love, to give us a sound mind. And that's all in contrast with fear, which paralyzes us when we are fearful. We're not able to do what God has for us to do nearly as well when we are crippled by fear. Children, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, it is the Holy Spirit's filling, filling us that gives us boldness to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit's filling that gives us boldness to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. Now, there are times when we ask for God's gifts of grace, right? We pray for the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We may pray for boldness in our lives, and yet we grow in measure, right? We, we don't get perfection right away. We, we grow month by month and, and year by year. And that's okay. That's what God has for us. He keeps us humble. He keeps us dependent. But he does grow us. But this particular example is one where God chose to pour out in great measure the power that was needed to do this. And I believe that we can expect the same kind of thing. I don't know the measure. I don't know the measure of the Spirit's outpouring when we pray such things. But I do know that God gives his Holy Spirit to those who ask him because he is a good father. Look at verse 31, the answer to their prayer. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God 
with boldness. This is an incredible manifestation of God's power. There was an actual earthquake that shook the place where they were meeting. I don't know how far the earthquake spread beyond their meeting place. I don't know if the whole city felt it. It's possible, probably. It had to be some degree of tremors that spread out from there. And this was a sign of the Spirit's power coming upon his people. And they continued to speak. Even though they were told not to speak, they kept speaking because the Holy Spirit had filled them with such courage. Now what this reminds us about, brothers and sisters, is that when God has a mission, he will equip his people with what they need to accomplish that mission. If we are doing God's will, then God is going to supply us with the gifts of grace that we need to do it. And so we never have an excuse to say, Lord, we just don't have what we need. We can't do it. Lord, you're going to have to postpone your plan. Uh, Maybe next year. No, if, if God has us to do something here and now, he's going to give us his grace and the resources that we need to do it. Now, as they are filled with the Holy Spirit, we notice here that this spirit filling is not a singular one-time event. Uh, we know that there's some that teach that uh, the, the, whole, the filling of the Holy Spirit is is a one-time second blessing for the Christian. You know, two tears, you get... Jesus, and then you one time you get this spirit filling at another point in your Christian life, and it's just an upgrade, it's a boost, it's very distinct in terms of the tears. But that's not what we see in Acts. We see continual spirit fillings. As the people of God need more of the Holy Spirit's power, God comes and says, Here's some more. How do we know this? Well, let's remember that the apostles Peter and John are already spirit filled men. Back in John 20, even before the day of Pentecost, Jesus comes to them, he says, he breathes on them, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. They already have the Holy Spirit. And then in uh, in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, what happens? The Spirit of God descends and empowers not only the apostles, but all of the 120 to speak the word of God and, and speak in tongues as well. And so they're filled with the Holy Spirit in this case, and they speak in tongues. One of the manifestations of the Spirit Of course, we notice here that the filling of the Holy Spirit here does not result in the speaking of tongues. That's not the uh, end-all, be-all filling of the Holy Spirit. In this case, it is the filling of the Spirit to give them boldness to speak the word. And so the idea of the filling of the Holy Spirit is that we are actually to seek, through prayer, the continual filling of the Holy Spirit. As we know, Ephesians 5 says, be filled with the Spirit. And then one of the manifestations of that is that we sing. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in the Spirit. And and this is an outflow of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't want this one-size-fits-all kind of boxed view of the filling of the Spirit. The the Spirit of God does many different things. He he brings about that fruit of the Spirit within us. What is a Spirit-filled person but one that walks in the fruit of the Spirit more and more? And so, brothers and sisters, I believe that we, as we respond to this prayer, uh, need to recognize the importance of this prayer for us as well. If we would be bold for Christ and his truth, we need power from on high. The fear of man has had a paralyzing effect on the modern church. So often the hard truths of the Bible are avoided, the law of God is ignored or deleted, 
And the powerful gospel, which brings true deliverance from sin, is often not preached with power and clarity because of the fear of man. This is what makes the church quiet or makes the church revise its gospel to a man-made gospel that doesn't save anybody. And so we need to ask the question, how is it with us, brothers and sisters? As a church in the Reformed tradition and background, we tend to have a, a particular sensitivity to doctrinal compromise. We're, we're, we tend to be solid on that matter, or at least we, we profess to be. Uh, sometimes we can still err in that regard. But aside from that, for the moment, we, do we have the boldness to speak the truth to others? Yes, we, we have the truth, we understand the truth, we have the, the, the true gospel as it's set forth in the scriptures, we want to hold to it, but do we have boldness to speak it to others? Every week, you and I, we face circumstances where we can choose between fearing God or fearing man. And which route do we take in the conversations and interactions that we have? And speaking for myself, I can sense so often the need for the spirit filling to have some boldness to speak the truth, especially to those that will either not care or will actually be opposed to it. We need this boldness, and therefore we need the spirit's empowering. And so, brothers and sisters, let us adopt this prayer. Let us make it part of the prayer life of our church, the corporate prayer life of our church, the individual prayer life of our church, that we would be a church that is bold. Before we close in prayer, I want to share just a few words with you from a particularly courageous man, Pastor Robert Bruce, who succeeded John Knox in Edinburgh in the 1600s. And for, for those of you that were at the Shepherds Conference presentation, I shared more about Robert Bruce that evening. And if you'd like the, uh, the story, I can send it, the, the recording to you. But Robert Bruce was a very courageous pastor. He, he, he stared down King James a number of times and even rebuked King James in public many times. And as you can imagine, it did not win him any favors. He ended up exiled a number of times uh, for many decades of his life and under the threat of death as well. But he persevered by the Spirit's empowering. He was a man who was bold for truth. And in one of his sermons, this is what he said. It's a good closing exhortation for us. He says, The love of God and the holy fear of his majesty should be predominant in thy heart. What does he say? The love of God and the holy fear of his majesty, the bigness of God, which we've seen in this prayer, should be predominant in thy heart. Suppose you have to do with a king or an emperor. Let not the love and fear of the king prevail, but lift up thine eyes to the majesty of God, and rather offend the king a thousand times than offend God once. Rather cast off thy son, thy wife, and thy children than fall in offending God. Learn to prefer God to the king. This is what we need to do, brothers and sisters, as we join the early church in this prayer, is we lift up our eyes, we lift up our voice to the majesty of God, the God to whom we pray, the creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign God, and we say, Lord, you have all power. Give us power as well to do your will. Empower us with boldness. Empower us with the fruit of the Spirit. Empower us not to give way to sin, but to do righteousness, to follow Christ in all things. And so let us now join the early church as we close with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, 
You are the creator of all things. You are the Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And you are the God who sustains all things to the present day. You are the one (coughs) who determines what takes place in history. And this gives us great confidence as we pray today that you can help us. You can strengthen our church to do the will of Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us power from on high. You would fill us in greater measure with your Holy Spirit to do your will and to be bold for the word of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.